Marketing Mindset, the Growth Hacker's Guide to Business Success. Join us with conversations with the world's leading experts, covering their biggest insights from years of experience. We also host deep dives into the latest innovations in marketing to the most successful time-worn strategies that you can start using today. I genuinely believe that effective marketing is about helping somebody come to a decision with which they remain happy, even if that's not to buy from you. I always used to write to people saying, you know, where are you? Where have you gone? I'd be direct, punchy. And you get widows writing back saying, my husband is gone to the other side. Oh, God, you know, this is, this, is, this, this is not good. The Marketing Mindset Podcast is hosted by me, Sam Harris, and my business, Postery, the leading solution of personalized marketing with the mission to rid the world of spam. Today I have Matt Brady on the podcast. He was the CMO of Just Eat during their meteoric rise across Europe, from a small takeaway booking startup through to their IPO at almost $2 billion. He led their marketing team, which helped change the brand from having just a dodgy website selling kebabs to becoming the most famous takeaway app in the continent. To the point where instead of saying, let's order a takeaway, you'd instead say, oh, let's use Just Eat tonight. But actually you mean, let's just get any form of takeaway, regardless of the platform. So he explains what they did to create such an iconic brand, as well as numerous other business lessons. So it's a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, what did you do before Just Eat? Where do you want to start, Sam? It's like a shrinks office. Yeah. Yeah, I think my career started playing a video game called Elite. It's a trading game. You're flying from one solar system to another, selling bits and bobs in one buying stuff and flying it back to another one, making money to upgrade your spaceship. I used to love that. In a way, that taught me entrepreneurialism. (laughs) And I laugh about it, but I do think there's a correlation between people that are good at digital marketing and video games. Because digital marketing, it's a lot about experimenting to get through the objective to see what your high score is going to be, like the level of a video game. So we've gone completely off tangent. So what did I do before? Just <laughs> yeah. I play video yeah, games. That's quite poignant. That's... So that made me think about business. I didn't know what kind of business. I really like being creative, but I really can't draw. So what kind of business jobs involve being creative, but don't involve the actual drawing? I ended up doing business courses at college and university. Then luckily, by the time I came out of university, the internet had just got pictures on it. Then they start becoming marketing once there's pictures on it. And... Yeah, I came out of university with a business degree, but taught myself HTML in the months after the degree, just when I was sitting around looking for graduate jobs. And lo and behold, it was that skill set that actually got me interviews. The fact that I taught myself HTML and I had a marketing degree. So that was off on an e-commerce online digital marketing career. I worked in all sorts of interesting companies. I worked for Coots Bank at one point for six months. And I actually quit on the end of my probation. But luckily, around that time, again, going back to video games, I was playing an online game called Quake. Have you heard of Quake, Sam? I have heard of Quake. I've okay, Quake. good. We're getting nearer to Sam's age group now. Some of the people I played Quake with have started working for this company called Gameplay.com, which was a spin-out of Dixon's and British Telecom, which was aiming to be the first big online portal, if you like. I think it was a portal back then, like Yahoo. Mm-hmm. So I went there, and that really kick-started the proper online career, really. Okay. And you were there for quite a long time? That lasted for two or three years, and then it 
like a lot of London dot coms, it got sucked into the black hole of the dot com bubble bursting. Then my manager bought it for a pound. So I did another year or so working for him, but I was working from my home, which was boring because I was used to being in London, being sociable. So I made the logical jump from a video games company to the Financial Times. Then I was in charge of digital marketing there. What I really enjoyed about that change was it's using the same skill set for optimizing online channels for selling Lara Croft. It's the same skill set for optimizing selling company data subscriptions. Mm. Yeah, that became my policy for us. Like, great, whenever I change jobs, I'm going to totally change industry, but keep the same mm. skill set and use it. So then after that, I went into restaurants. I went to work for Top Table. I ended up at Just Eat selling kebabs. I got introduced to Just Eat by Index, who are the mafia of this trade in London, as you know. Yeah. Twice they tried to make me meet Just Eat, and it took them a couple of efforts before I would take the meeting. So, and when I met Just Eat, I just fell in love with the team. They were hilarious because I was quite offish of like, yeah. why would I want to come and sell kebabs yeah, yeah. on the internet? And they're like, your website looks terrible at the time. And they were like, we know, that's why we need someone to help us fix it. So what I liked about that opportunity was I could tell from the people I'd be working for and with, creative license to lead and direct where things would go, which turned out to be true, which was incredible fun. Yeah, it's really nice when you get a job where you get to do what you're good at and have control to do all of it. Did you not have that so much before? Not in the Financial Times, no. You know, it's a great company, but it's not the sort of place you're going to be creatively fulfilled necessarily. A lot more fun working for Top Table, which ended up being sold to Open Table. But again, there was working for a founder who had very strong views. And founders with strong views can be problematic if you've also got strong views. So, yeah, getting a gig with um, Just Eat, where they treated me as a co founder, the brand founder, as they like to label me, it was great. It was a real partnership. I never felt like I worked for anybody. And that's the great feeling why people start their own businesses. So Just Eat was the biggest, well, the most memorable of the food brands back when it was around and compared to Hunger House and things. And yeah. Did you feel responsible for its success? Because have you helped? No. There's hundreds of people in Just Eat that are responsible for its success. So my team, initially we were small. I was worrying about what we were doing. Facebook had only just started letting business have business pages. There was no way to advertise. So we were just ourselves on social media. It was very authentic to what the company was. We weren't pretending to be. There's some hilarious, really bad videos on YouTube of original teams singing the 12 Days of Christmas. Terrible production values. looks awful. But at the time, companies weren't doing mucking around like that. Now everyone has a content strategy and tries to look yeah. authentic. But we just authentically got social media because we were sociable. Very quickly got a million followers on Facebook. I think we were one of the first UK brands to get there because you couldn't spend money at that point. And that really helped fundraising for later rounds as well. Yeah, there's something to be said. When you join a really good team, it makes you do your best work. And on that, do you think that you'd be in a similar place right now if you joined a different company? If I'd gone somewhere else, do you think I would have had the same impact on that company? Possibly eventually. I don't think that's about me, though. I think that's about a jigsaw puzzle piece of 550 pieces, of which I'm one. But again, that goes back to, I think that's culturally then what part of why you become a success. If it doesn't feel like work, people work longer and harder. If your audience is aimed at people that are doing startups, one of the things, you know, I do a lot of mentoring with startups myself. It's like, 
you know who you are as a culture of the founding 10 people, don't bring people into that culture that are going to clash with it because bring people in that will enhance it. You are recruiting friends as much as you are talent. You can get distracted by the quest for talent because then you can hire really talented people that can be real flies in ointments. What's your biggest tips for how to ask the best questions in an interview? One thing that our CFO used to do was just tell people an anecdote about him cleaning the toilet and just see how they reacted, get a sense of would they want to clean the toilet. He's never going to make them clean the toilet. It's more of a case of are they the sort of people that are going to roll their sleeves up, whatever the task, to get this thing built. I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? From a marketing perspective, I value creative minds probably too much than I should. So I would always set creative for the final selection. I'd always get the last two or three candidates to do a pitch and just see what's coming out of their brains. That was the only way, really, to weed out creative thinkers. Yeah, it's a good one trying to hire the right people. I mean, what I find works with startups quite well is taking on someone for a few months for mm. two or three days a week, and if they're brilliant, then bring them into the business full time. Nice. Okay. How did a setback or failure set you up for later success? I hate questions like that. I think I've got a really bad brain at remembering bad things. Yeah. But I learned an awful lot at top table. So there was a myriad of lessons from that three-year period that really set up a lot of the initial success we had with the marketing department at Justeep. For example, the founder of Top Table had a very strong creative vision, which I was respecting, but it was great. It wasn't mine, but it was hers. And again, that's something I then took with me into Justeep. One positive leadership lesson from that founder was actually having a strong point of view on the creativity can really help. And I think that's probably what you see lacking with the current suite of just the adverts. There's guiding creative voice behind them. They're optimised for telling as many people as possible. Yeah, so there's lots of lessons I learned from having a bad job, if that makes sense, which I then took into helping try and make my own department good when I got a chance to build a big department across the world. How did you empower people to be creative and think differently to what you were thinking, maybe? I think it comes naturally to me because I'm very lazy. Yeah. My ideal way of ending a one-to-one meeting with reports was, you're boring me now, please just leave. I'm not that disciplined. I'm a fireworky brain, so I need my North Star, which is trying to tell a story about mm. trying to ban cooking or whatever it might be. And I would be hiring people that are much better disciplined than me. Also, having really good number twos, yeah, having a good set of deputies that are much more disciplined than you are. So, yeah, they were able to take the sparky, fireworky boss leadership vision and be more disciplined about executing it. That's quite interesting because I have been meeting some founders lately that they're hugely successful, but they seem to be on like a slightly different planet. They definitely couldn't deal with making any of this happen. Somehow managed to get a team behind them that deal with turning weird ideas into actual reality and organizing everything. Now, I'm quite a doer. and I'm quite single-minded about doing the thing I'm, I'm going to do. And if you've got 100 people in the marketing department, it's not going to fly, is it? You can't be interested in 100 different projects. But what you're trying to do is set objectives and goals that everyone understands. The magic of it is having KPIs. And the point of KPIs is the first word, key. There are three KPIs that are going to change this business to success. What are the three? Put them at the top in bold. The rest of them might inform the top three. So for me, When Justeep got really big quite quick, my KPI became quite clear to me, which was brand. And that was a big 
road to Damascus changing my brain because I've been a digital yeah. marketing gamer. E-commerce was the phrase we used before digital marketing. I was an e-commerce specialist rather than a brand specialist. What I learned most from Just Eat was having the more powerful the brand KPIs. We got every single digital KPI effortlessly improved without too much more effort. So my KPI became the brand stupid. And that's now been my mentor and investor and in all the things I do now. How did you measure brand as a KPI exactly? We used YouGov because we had big budgets by end. But earlier on, we used other companies that did a similar thing. So we would basically do brand awareness survey of name a company which you can order takeaway food from online. I think we cheated because we asked the audience. I think the first question was, would you ever consider ordering takeaway online? The second question would be, name a company. When we first started doing that, Domino's was by far the biggest brand in space. And we were a distant, distant second. By the time we finished Don't Cook, Just Eat, we were ahead of them and they were way back. How do you think that campaign changed things? For those listeners that didn't see it, we did a marketing campaign once called Don't Cook, Just Eat. And it was really an anti-cooking marketing campaign. How it came about was using the eat big fish kind of process. We work with those guys. It's a marketing agency, but it's also a book called Eating the Big Fish by Adam Morgan. Highly recommend it. Yeah, I am on commission sales. I need all those 50Ps. So Eating the Big Fish. And through that process, we got a really strong sense of personality that we were quite rebellious, basically because we argued an awful lot in their sessions. If you're rebellious, what are you rebelling against? It seemed obvious. If you're selling food that's been cooked, we don't want you to cook. We can't be anti-cooking. It's so in the zeitgeist that everyone should be cooking. You know, this was a time of foodie culture, food markets, taste of London, all this kind of foodie. It would be hilarious if we were the one thing in society that was standing up to foodie culture. We can't do it. The fact that we think we can't do it means that we should do it. And we went for it. Yeah, it worked brilliantly. I mean, if you saw those adverts on the on the ground, you'd think, what is that company doing? It's trying to ban cooking. Oh, I get it. They're a takeaway company. But the fact you had to think for a second about why on earth a company was trying to ban cooking, that made your brain click in a few neurons that all the other 300 adverts you saw in your commute don't do. They do not write to the hard disk of your brain, most adverts. A great advert, like last year's John Lewis advert, Animated Bear or whatever, will write to my brain for years. Go back to digital, then when you bump into us on digital, be it PPC because you've searched takeaway leads or something, you've got a subconscious recognition that that's a brand that you trust because you've remembered it from somewhere. The adverts they're making now, it's a standard advert. It's not going to write to anyone's hard disk. You can do that kind of marketing. It's fine. That's what most big brands do. But then you get into a money spending game. You have to spend a lot of money to get adverts which are not remarkable. You have to be remarkable. You have to say something that people are going to notice. But that doesn't mean you have to be silly. We were silly because our internal culture was a bit silly. It was authentic. There's nothing worse than a serious company like Ford trying to be funny. It's not authentic when they try to be funny. Cool. So you spoke about the importance of you having a North Star and direction. How have you been finding direction in the last few years? Yeah, so initially I had another startup that I founded 
we really didn't know the strategy of what it was trying to do until it was probably 18 months, two years. And then we had another year or two experimenting around trying to get growth. I worked with 500 startups occasionally as a mentor for them, but also in that we took our startup through their program and learned a lot about growth hacking. But really that's actually about having a disciplined approach to experimenting and testing. What I learned from Just Eat, a big thing we learned from Just Eat, I said the word earlier, earned. I think we earned an awful lot of our growth. We didn't buy it. We earned it because the restaurants were good partners and let's put stickers up. And we'd support the restaurants through branding their menus. But we did that through hard work. We'd do a printing deal for our restaurant partners. They would get their menus printed at almost half price. If they just put our logo on it, fine. Before you know it, you've got more leaflets going through letterboxes than Domino's Pizza. All of that stuff's earned, not bought, by being a good partner to the restaurants. By doing those things, working with the restaurant partners, they grew the business as much, if not more, than anything else. Anyway, we decided after a year of experiments that it would probably take another two or three years for it to get in good shape. And mm. we just took the moral responsibility, like, we can't keep raising... We were able to raise more money, but we thought, we've already gone out there and done a couple of rounds saying buy... And it was already three, getting on for four years old at that point. Wow. The first two years, I wasn't paying too much attention to it because I was willing to just eat. It was a friend of mine was his founder. So it was really two or three years in before we nailed what the proposition should be, by which time we had a lot of energy had gone out the founding team as to doing another two or three years' work to, to fix it. I feel bad for the other investors, but from a personal perspective, there's no bigger investor in that business than me. And for me, I was glad to learn the lessons. That was my first year or so out of just eat. Then during that time and ever since, I'm also been invested in a few other businesses and I've done a lot of talking and mentoring around London of other startups. Like I said, I did a bit of mentoring for 500 startups, but also done mentoring for Seed Camp. I'm also one of their partners in their fund and I also have an involvement in a company called Growth Invest, which is a platform for supporting small businesses and startups. So. What I try to do now is help an organization like Growth Invest or 500, and then they can use me for open days yeah. or whatever, make office hours. I try not to get too heavily involved in individual businesses. But then this year, I have got too involved in an individual business, so I'm working with a very bright founder from the banking trade, and he's got a moral problem with overdrafts. Having worked in the senior banking roles himself for a decade or two, I mean, the problem with of modern banking is that it's free at point of service for those of us in the black. So banking only can make money out of consumers if they're in debt. That's kind of crazy. Making your money yeah. from people that can least yeah, afford money. to pay you. And yeah. it's just the nature of how banking has evolved around the world. So he stepped away from his senior career in banking to try and do this app that we've named Updraft. And Updraft is the wind that elevates balloons mm. and kites into the skies. If you're going to launch a fintech app in London right now, you need to be very clear about what you're doing because there's quite a few of them. We're about solving the overdraft problem for people. So what Updraft does, it plugs into your existing bank account, it analyzes your behavior, and it can predict accurately as you use it when you're likely to go overdrawn in a month. Forewarned is forearmed. Um, the founder has seen knows from testing within the banking trade that just a text message telling people that they've gone overdrawn 
would result in, I don't know, say 30% of people getting out of overdraft pretty quick. Yeah. But of course, most banks don't tell you when you've gone overdraft. Yeah, yeah. Not in their interest to tell you because they're making those 50p yeah. a days. And that's exactly what this thing will do. So you're likely to go overdrawn in two days. Do you want to move money from A to B? It makes suggestions. And the second thing it will do is if you do need to go overdrawn because you haven't got anywhere else to move it from, it will then replace your overdraft with a much cheaper loan until the next payday. Nice. Yeah, so for me, that's a rare example of a company that I get heavily involved in helping. And mm. obviously that one's got a strong social benefit to it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be massively interested in that fintech app. Nice. What do you think the world's going to be like in five years' time? I think it'll be pretty much the same. Something surprising might have happened. It generally doesn't change much five years to five years unless you have an incendiary incident like 9-11. Yeah. What about in marketing? What do you think would be the next big thing in 10 years of no longer Facebook ads? Like what's going to be driving people? People going back to brands? I'm certainly advocating people do that now. It's back to basics. I have too many conversations with people trying to optimize this channel, that channel. And initially when a new channel comes along like Twitter or something, you can have initial success. But eventually... Too many other brands catch wind that it's successful and the CPAs obviously become more competitive. So those things are good to just catch the wave of. That's for me, the big learning from Just Eat was actually going back to basics of, wow, we've got to tell good stories. It doesn't matter if we turn our story in a shop window or on Facebook or an email. Having a coherent story that people notice and remember is the basic job. I don't think that's ever changed. No, it's not. I think we and I say we as digital marketeers, you know, I was a digital marketeer professionally. We ascended in power very, very quickly because the ROIs of our work was so good compared to brand people. That is now rescinding. I see so many, lots of presentations about CPAs flying through the roof. But it goes back to the basics of telling good stories. I think marketing is not a science. It's an art and a science. And the science bit took over because it's, the whole mantra of if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, we shouldn't do it, took over. But there's a lot of stuff you can't measure with branding, but you really do have to do it. So what are you not very good at? Oh, God, where do we start? So spreadsheets, some doing budgets, core skills that a CMO of a global company should have, just fake them, fake them to the catchy. Okay, so do you think you can get by as a CMO without them as long as what you're doing is good? Yeah. You can get away with being creative and having a strong voice in the process as long as your product is growing. It's when there's trouble, everyone starts giving you their opinion and starts yeah. trying to control you, tell you what you're doing wrong. But when you're winning, everything's always easy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They say that about investors. It doesn't matter who your investor is so much if everything's going well. Yeah. You know, Just Eat's now a big organisation and it's on the FTSE. And I was always trying to battle this preconception that, well, once we're on the FTSE, we've got to grow up. Yeah. The FTSE doesn't give a monkeys if you yeah. grow up. The FTSE cares about growth. If you're getting growth by being silly, then be silly. Don't start thinking of adverts. We've got to be sensible and straight. Because the business is now a FTSE 100 company. What gets you to be a FTSE 100 company and stay there is growth. Mm. And you won't get growth by being dull. That's interesting. Did you worry that's something that they're not doing? I don't worry. It's not my problem. I'm off having fun. But um, they're clearly boring. Their adverts are straight adverts for a company that delivers takeaway. I mean, we just commuted across London to get to this room. We probably passed 300 plus adverts 
I literally, the only advert I noticed was the Just Eat one, not because it's good, because I'll see him over Just Eat. Yeah. <laughs> it's contextually relevant to me. But apart from that, I didn't notice a single poster on the way here, and I've travelled mm. all the way from Bishop Stortford. For adverts to be noticed, marketing to be noticed, safety doesn't work. You've got to have something that people will remark upon and notice. Is it hard, though, when you're a bigger company and things do become a bit more bland because you get too many opinions? It's not hard. It's seen as inevitable, and I would say it shouldn't be inevitable. I think it's where probably the UK establishment is behind the curve on supporting growth companies as they become big. There is this more grown-up suits type, join your board and they want fiscal responsibility. And that's why you want to be fiscally responsible and you want to obviously obey the laws of the country. But that's not the same thing as becoming dull and straight down the middle. Yeah. As a communicator, you talk to a lot of people who are growing startups and a lot of the conversations you have are about passion, vision, those core values. But they're innate in a startup because you're a family-type environment. There's 10 of you, then there's 20 of you, then there's 50 of you. Even at that size, those family values of that group are inherent in the group. Obviously, when you get to being 1,500 people, that's a lot harder to get that coherent family feeling that we're all in it together, battling to slay the dragon type feeling. It's become a job for a lot more people. And people that just want a job tend to be more conservative. Whereas people that join startups are attracted to adventure. So we've spoken about quite a few things that you give people in terms of advice when you're talking to founders and things. Is there any things that you haven't yet shared that you nearly always tell someone as a founder that they should be thinking about? Well, yeah, I mean, get your story sorted. Hire people that like that story and will help you tell that story. And again, a lot of people want to tell you what they're doing and what a brilliant business opportunity is. I don't really care. The public doesn't really care. Everyone's polite. You can go and meet investors for weeks and who take meetings with you to hear about your great idea. And they'll be ever so polite to you, but they'll never invest. Cool. And yeah, do you have any other questions you want to ask me? Should we go and get a cup of tea? Yeah, it's a, it's a wrap. Thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You just listened to an episode of Marketing Mindset. Please hit subscribe and tell all your marketing and business buddies they need Marketing Mindset in their lives. If you're feeling generous or bored, then invest 20 seconds in leaving us a good rating and we should be very grateful.